If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This episode is the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, and the topic for today is the Aztecs. Joining me in conversation about the Central American civilization was the historian Caroline Dodds-Pennock. Let's begin at the very beginning um, with one of the most searched for terms on the internet, which is an incredibly basic question, but probably quite hard to answer. Who were the Aztecs? So the Aztecs, who are probably more properly called the Mexica, that's who we're talking about when we talk about the Aztecs, lived in the basin of central Mexico between about 1325 and the Spanish arrival in 1519. Of course, they don't die out then, but that is the height of their civilization. And then things change after the Spanish arrival. The Aztecs are one of a number of groups of people who migrated from northern Mexico or what is now the southern United States during the period between about 1000 and 1300-ish. There are a lot of different groups. And the people we call the Aztecs, the people who settled at the city of Tenochtitlan, what became the city of Tenochtitlan, are the last of those groups to arrive in the valley, which is one of the reasons they end up in an inhospitable place on an island in the first place. People think this isn't going to be a very good place and then they manage to turn it into a fortress. Of course, the answer to this might differ over different time periods, but how big was Aztec civilization? 
the what we call the Aztec Empire covered an awful lot of central Mexico. You're talking about millions of people theoretically under the aegis of the Aztec Empire. The city of Tenochtitlan is only about 13 square kilometers. And there've been huge debates about how many people live in that area. It's at least 100,000. Some people have gone up to three quarters of a million. I'd come down realistically probably 200,000, something like that. So it's a very crowded metropolis in the middle of a lake on the site of what is now Mexico City. And so next we have a really broad question, but it might be quite a good introductory um, one, which is what are the Aztecs known for? The Aztecs are probably realistically most well-known for human sacrifice. They have become stereotypes in history of this violent, brutal, bloodthirsty warrior culture as well. And that is part of the reality. There is a lot of human sacrifice in Tenochtitlan, but they're also an extremely family-oriented and extremely creative, poetic, sensitive, educated, very civilised in our terms culture. So it's kind of an unfair stereotype, but I think it is the one that most people imagine, this idea of priests and warriors ripping people's hearts out on temples. Well, we definitely will come on to some questions about human sacrifice because they were very popular in what people submitted. But hopefully we can kind of uncover some of those other layers as well with some of the questions to follow and and reveal there's more to it than that. So... On which note, um, first up for our our reader questions, we've got a question from um, Little Keithy, great name, on Twitter, who asks, how was the economy and society organised? That is a very, very large question, and it depends which part of the economy and which part of the society that you're talking about. So the city of Tenochtitlan is a big agricultural centre. They have large gardens, uh, what have called floating gardens, but actually a very well-irrigated gardens uh, in Joshimilco. You can still see part of that in Mexico City today where they have a lot of agriculture. But that agriculture and their internal trade and production can't supply the city sufficiently. So what happens is they end up being a civilization based on tribute, largely. By the time the Spanish arrive, the city would collapse if it were not for the amount of tribute that they were bringing in, not just in terms of luxury goods, but also in terms of staples. So economically, they've become what we call a parasitic city. They're dependent on stuff from other places to survive. Socially, that is an enormous question. It depends where you're talking about. On one level, it's a very hierarchical culture. So they have an extremely strict order of ranks of people with warriors and priests and particular kinds of nobles at the top and a mass of what we might call peasants or commoners, craftsmen underneath. But you also have a degree of social mobility. People can become nobles through particular achievements or through capturing a lot of people for sacrifice or simply by being picked out and recognised by the ruler. So you have this really interesting balance between social mobility and hierarchy in this civilization. There's obviously a lot more I could say about it. We could go into the way their gender is organized, which is very parallel. You could go into the way the city is organized, which is in terms of these districts, which have responsibility for various legal, religious, economic, social functions. I would say overall, it's quite a collaborative society. They have a lot of communal work, for example. They have shared grain stores. They go to a lot of effort to ensure everybody has a kind of minimum supply of stuff. Um, Leading on from that question, and I think probably ties into the issue you were talking about there of tribute, um, is another question from um, Todd Patton on Facebook, who asks, how centralised was the Aztec government? That is a difficult question because we don't have very good sources for Aztec culture. So I'm speaking as if we really know things about Aztec civilization, but an awful lot, the vast majority of what we know about Aztec society comes from sources from after the conquest written by the Spanish or by indigenous people, but kind of later on, or with the collaboration of indigenous informants. But still what we're getting is a colonial perspective looking backwards. And of course, the Spanish have very centralised government with a king at the head. Um, And so they write about Aztec civilization as if it is the same. They recognise the familiar bits. So they pick out the person, the Tlatoani, who is the ruler, what we call the ruler. It means speaker. 
he's the equivalent of the king. People often call him the king. But in reality, there's another person who rules next to him, the Siwakoatl, the woman snake, who is a, a man, but personified as a woman, who has, it seems, responsibility for domestic things. And he's almost completely hidden in a lot of the colonial sources. People just don't recognise that dual rulership, so they focus on Moctezuma, the man often known as Montezuma, in the the writings. So you get this image of something that looks quite like Spanish society, but actually is probably a more collaborative, more um, uh, locally organised civilization. There certainly is a very centralised rule in terms of schooling, in terms of tribute, and in terms of warfare and religion. But in terms of day-to-day civilization, it's actually, as I said earlier, devolved to these smaller districts that we call Calpulis. As a historian, how do you try and get behind that um, colonialist Spanish narrative? It's really, really hard. It's what I do pretty much all the time when I'm working on Aztec culture is what we call reading against the grain, trying to find something in the text that wasn't what the author intended. Some people say you can only see what the author meant in these texts, that you can never really uncover the reality of Aztec civilization. But I think if we want to try and give the Aztec people some kind of humanity to understand their perspective at all, we have to really try and dig into these texts. You can sometimes do it through language, through archaeology, and then there are also records that are created in collaboration with Indigenous informants. The most famous is a book called The Florentine Codex, which a Franciscan friar called Bernardino de Sahagún made in collaboration with hundreds of Indigenous informants and young men called the Trilinguals, because they spoke Spanish, Latin and Nahuatl, and they helped him those are Indigenous young men, sorry, and they helped him put together this enormous collection. It's 12 volumes of ethnographic material about the Aztecs, so about their gods, their lives. One of the books which I find really particularly interesting is book six, which is called Rhetoric and Moral Philosophy, a very dramatic title. But what it actually is, is a collection of speeches that were given at key moments in the Aztec life cycle, including ones that were given at times like when you find out you're pregnant. And these can seem very formalised speeches, But when you dig into them, they're quite familiar. So the one about when you get pregnant, the the parent gives this speech and it says things like, well, you know, it may you're looking to the future. You're imagining what the baby might look like. Will it look like the dad? Do be aware you might lose the baby and then we'll just have to um, kind of face the things with God, face things together. It's a really sensitive speech. And so you you kind of, yeah, it's you have to be prepared to use these things in empathetic, nuanced ways and also to be prepared to say we're not sure, we're speculating about what this could have been or may have been like based on the context and talking with contemporary Indigenous civilizations and how they feel about things, you know, oral histories and and ongoing traditions, for example, can sometimes give you an insight into the parts that might be authentic. But you spend a lot of time saying, I'm not sure, and perhaps people felt like this, and it seems likely. It's all very speculative and dodgy. Well, to pick up on your point there about trying to reconstruct the social history, we did have a few questions on that. Um, So quite a few people. So we've got LK Whitehead, Elizabeth Kerr, 31, Hilton Smith, 89, all asked some variations of the question, how were women treated and what was their status? Now might be a good time to discuss that. And that's something I'm particularly interested in because gender is a really fascinating area in Aztec culture. There's a big debate about it, again, because the sources are really influenced by Spanish patriarchal viewpoints, it's quite hard to dig down into them. My view is that Aztec culture is what we call a complementary society, where men and women fulfil very specific but very different roles, both of which are seen as essential to the successful running of the society. So women hold what we would consider a domestic role, but that doesn't just mean 
housework. It means work in the community as midwives, doctors, marketplace overseers. And men hold a more public-facing role as warriors and priests and so on. So men do hold, there is a degree of patriarchy in there, men do hold the traditional uh, power roles, the, the political rulers, the priests, the head priests anyway. There are priestesses, but again, they fulfil more of a domestic role, supplying the temple and so on. So some people would say Aztec culture is patriarchal. More people, the vast majority of people now, um, agree with what I'm saying, which is that it's this parallel culture. And you do see some things that really undermine the idea that it's a patriarchal society. Things like the fact that women inherit equally with men. So sons and daughters inherit equally. There's no patrilineage like there is in European society. It's not Power doesn't go to the eldest son. It does usually go to the son, though there are a few women rulers, but usually goes to a male relative, but not the eldest son. So you lose this. Men and women can get divorced. Um, You're not allowed to beat your wife. Women hold actual tangible roles alongside men, as I mentioned, marketplace overseers, things like this. Roles of actual administrative importance. I have a feeling I've said actual a few times. But what I'm trying to get at is that it's not just theoretical respect for women, but also tangible markers of power. So women are in control of the household. They control the household finances, for example. I could say a lot more about this, but I guess the one last thing I would say is that you also see very powerful female deities. There are a lot of goddesses who are very respected and very important. And one of the sources of power for Aztec women comes through their connection to the earth through childbirth. So when women are giving birth, they're believed to be literally possessed by the spirit of Siwakoatl, the woman snake. And that makes them kind of dangerous and a bit frightening, but also really, really important and powerful. This is a perfect point then for me to um, throw our next question at you, uh, which is from Angie Copping on Facebook, who asks, what were the deities that they worshipped? And were they linked to the seasons or the elements? Um, What do we know about them? We know that they had loads and loads and loads. I couldn't give you a number because there are so many of them and they exist in different aspects. So you will have one god who has several different personalities at different times of the year, for example. He'll appear in, so Quetzalcoatl can also be the, he can be the wind god or he can be the god of priests. So you have all these different aspects. Gods are for every part of life. There are gods for really big, important things like rain and warfare. And there are gods for small things like pulque, which is an alcoholic drink or for particular trades. The two most prominent gods in Aztec culture, the two who have their temples at the top of the Temple of Mayor pyramid, are Huitzilopochtli, the god of war, who is the Aztec tribal god, and Tlaloc, who is the god of water. And what you have there are the two pillars, basically, of agricultural prosperity, warfare that brings in tribute, and water and fertility for the agriculture side and you see them brought together on the temple and so uh, these gods were integral to every part of aztec life absolutely yes we focus enormously on human sacrifice at the top of the temple but you also have small-scale household rituals going on day to day people see the spiritual imbued in every part of life, really. So, for example, the corn deities are really, really important, the maize deities. And you see indigenous women in this period breathing on grains of corn before they put them in the pot so that the shock of the heat won't be too much. Even the corn itself is personified. It's They see the spiritual in the landscape. The mountains are gods. The water gods control whether you have a good harvest or a bad harvest. But they don't see all gods as benevolent. This isn't a sort of father figure kind of god. Some gods need to be appeased because they're powerful and capricious and might try and send a flood to you if you don't do the right rituals in the right order, all this sort of thing. But gods are part of everything in everyday life. Well, since you mentioned appeasing the gods, let's move on now to human sacrifice, because we had so many questions on it. But one that I thought was quite 
entertainingly worded, was um, Sat McTee on Facebook who said, quite simply, why so much human sacrifice? Well, that's a question. This is a very historian answer. But, you know, the question itself implies there was a lot of human sacrifice. And it's quite hard to tell, in fact, how much sacrifice there was, depending on which source you use or which set of statistics. I tried to calculate this in an article a few years ago. And you either end up with a number that is a very high homicide rate for this period or a really quite low homicide rate. It's not very helpful. There was, though, prominent human sacrifice taking place and regular sacrifice taking place. And the root of this, as far as we can tell, is to do with a reciprocal relationship between the gods and humans. Something where you have to give back to the gods because they gave to you. So a lot of the mythical histories of the Aztec people talk about the the gods sacrificing themselves to create humanity. So there's an account of the great earth crocodile Tlaltecutli and she supposedly was ripped in half to create the land and then humans had to feed her with blood in order to keep her going, to sustain her and also to kind of pay back the original debt. The myth that the Aztecs particularly focus on, though I would call it a mythical history because they believe this to be part of their history, what happens is one of the gods goes into the underworld and gets the bones of a man and a woman from a previous era. He steals them from under the nose of the Lord of the Land of the Dead and brings them to a place that broadly translates as paradise. And there they are ground up by a female god in a kind of traditional woman's role. They're ground on a grinding stone into into a flower, bone flower, and the male gods let blood from their penises to moisten the dough so they can form little human figures out of it. And that is how this incarnation of humanity came to be because the Aztecs also believe that there have been, up to this point, five ages of the world, that we're living in the fifth age. And so this is how humanity is formed in this age. So human sacrifice pays back the blood debt that is formed when the gods let blood from themselves to create the world. And they believe that if they don't sustain the sun with blood, the world will come to an end. So they're sort of feeding the gods, essentially. It's kind of a an altruistic act in a way in that it, it isn't really for personal gain. They believe that all of humanity it's necessary for all of humanity for human sacrifice to take place. So in some sacrificial cultures, you offer a human sacrifice to gain the power of that person and you might become richer or more important or have more children, whatever it is that you're wanting. This is a communal debt. It's a a collective debt. On that note of, of doing it for the greater good, one question from Tommy Omak was, is it true that people willingly volunteered for human sacrifice? And I would probably broaden that out at Um, to ask who were the victims, if that's the right word, of sacrifice? So in theory, there were some voluntary victims of human sacrifice. It's very hard to tell whether they were actually voluntary in reality. The majority of victims are people captured in war, men mostly, but also sometimes women and children. Some of them are sacrificed just as kind of generic victims that say, oh, well, we needed to sacrifice five people or whatever it was. Some of them are sacrificed as impersonators of the gods, ishiptla, people who take on the mantle, the identity of a god, and then are sacrificed in honour of the god they're impersonating. I don't think we should get into why you would honour a god by killing them, because that's a much bigger question. But these Ishiptla form a, a really prominent part of the monthly, um, well, they have a different number of months for us, but essentially the regular round of festivals. You have children sacrificed in particular for Tlaloc, the rain god. And I think it, those are mostly from within the Aztec group because we know that from within Tenochtitlan because we know that if you're born with a double cowlick in your hair, you know, those flicks that make your hair go in the wrong direction, then you will become a sacrificial victim. And there's some talk about whether if you know when a child is born, especially in a culture with a high infant mortality rate, whether you might be able to kind of mentally distance from them. 
But we also know that it's a sympathetic magic. The children are supposed to cry. People are supposed to cry about them dying. And that brings the rain. For me, it's very notable that those children are not sacrificed in the city, but are taken into the mountains to be sacrificed in a lake. It's a very horrible method of death, which I won't go into now because some people might not want that. You can look it up quite easily if you look up child sacrifices to Tlaloc. But I find it significant that the one sacrifice that very prominently takes place away from the city and regularly is that of children, because you wonder whether people would be prepared to watch that in quite the same way. But I'm only speculating. There are accounts of voluntary victims, and we mustn't forget that other cities around are also practising sacrifice. So there's a kind of acceptance that as a warrior, if you're captured by another city, you will be sacrificed. So Aztec warriors themselves are being sacrificed in other cities. This doesn't apply when they go around sacrificing Spanish, of course, but it is a shared belief with most of the people who they're at war with. And dying as a sacrifice or in battle is one of the very few ways you can get a privileged afterlife. The closest parallel is something like martyrdom, really, where you die for the gods and gain a privilege as a result. So you go off, if you're a man who dies in sacrifice, you will go off to become, first you accompany the sun for four years, kind of leading and heralding the god in a glorious way. And then you go off to become a hummingbird or butterfly that dances in the sun and sips the nectar. And the sources suggest they they live drunk, almost oblivious to the cares of the world. And when the vast majority of people are going off to a place called Mictlan after they die, which is not hell, but it's a kind of dark, damp, not very pleasant place where it's kind of low-grade suffering for eternity. You can see why that might seem an appealing, you know, die as a sacrifice, go to paradise sort of thing. So in reality, though, the likelihood is that some people went exalting their cities, praising and saying, "Okay, this is my fate as a warrior, I'm going to face it bravely. And other people were dragged kicking and screaming. And that's what the sources suggest that both happened. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But I think we often wash them out in favour of focusing on these big, white, you know, the great white men figures. But in actual fact, what you have is this real mixing of cultures that includes people. The Aztecs and the people of Mexico are very much part of that and their commodities. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Um, it's kind of hard to follow to have a follow-up question um, after that. But to circle back round to some more social history, um, 
we've got a question which is about the education of children or teaching. Do we know anything about that? That was from um, T and Tots on Instagram. Yes, education is really, really interesting because Tenochtitlan is the only pre-modern culture I know with a universal education system, an institutional education system. I would love to know if there are any others. Do tell me if anybody knows of any. They have three kinds of schools. The exact ages you enter them and quite what they teach vary from source to source. But what we do know is that you broadly have the Telpochali, which is a warrior school where the majority of young men go. We have the Kalmakak, which is a priestly school where children of nobles and prospective priests go to be trained up in beliefs, myths. And then we have a thing called the Kuikakali, which means house of song, and all young men and women go there in their teens, in the evenings, it seems, after they've done their chores and their work with their parents and so on, to learn history, religion, beliefs. It's also a place where they get to socialise a little bit. But for me, it's really important for understanding how human sacrifice can happen because we're not talking about a culture where actually like early modern Europe, where lots of people go to church and it's in Latin and they have no idea what's actually going on in the service or they have a sense of the structure, but they don't understand the words. Here, the Aztecs go to very great lengths to make sure everybody knows why they're doing what they're doing, why sacrifice is happening, why the structure of society is the way it is. People become educated in their teens. There's also parental education. So you learn practical skills, from your mother and father. So after a baby is weaned, probably at about four, uh, eventually boys go with fathers and girls go with mothers. So women don't have that burden of universal childcare that you see in a lot of places. Young men follow their fathers around and learn trades. They learn warrior skills as well from them. Young women learn domestic skills from their mothers and weaving as well, which is a big economic thing because cotton is is an economic commodity. And So you have this parallel system. Even if they get divorced, the boys go with the father and the girls go with the mother. So you have the household education, but then you have this formalised education structure. There might also have been some trade schools, but it's not very clear in the sources. But certainly people are learning, including women, are learning skilled trades too. So it's an incredibly sophisticated civilization. It is, yeah. It's very, very sophisticated, very cultured in a lot of the ways that Europeans would find familiar. This is one of the things the Spanish find really difficult to grapple with. These people don't fit into a stereotype of savage or native culture, as they call it. It just doesn't fit at all. What you have is a society that are in some ways seeming very, very brutal. The Spanish cannot manage human sacrifice at all. They don't know why that's happening. They think it's absolutely abhorrent, but also are very clean. They have a very ordered, purpose-built city. They have very strong government, which the Spanish really like, strong laws, strong punishment. They have very um, demure women, is how it's seen, women who are very proper and well-behaved, though they don't much like that they're half-naked, but they're very proper. It's a, a real intellectual challenge for the Spanish. It doesn't fit into the boxes they've got, which are either of these very brutal barbarian civilizations, these are their stereotypes, preconceptions, or of um, very innocent, naked, going about as if they're still living in the Garden of Eden kind of types. Those are the two preconceptions that they come with, and these people don't fit into them at all. Um, We've spoken a bit throughout this conversation about um, the cities, um, But I wonder if you could go into a bit more detail on that. So Debbie Dernal on Facebook asked, how did they build their great buildings? But I wonder whether you could just talk a bit more broadly about what Aztec societies looked like physically. So Tenochtitlan is what we think of as the Aztecs. And this is a city on an island in a lake. So there's still a lake where Mexico City is now, but it's very small. At the time, it covered most of the Valley of Mexico, And Tenochtitlan was on an island with three great causeways leading to it and a big tidal barrier. It has masonry buildings 
of above two stories for nobles and for religious buildings, big palaces, things like that. Other people are living in probably the most familiar explanation is something like wattle and daub or or clay brick houses. There are canals running through the city. People use canoes as their main form of transportation. So you might have a canal running alongside your house. You would have a lot of gardens, in particular to the the, uh, fringes of the city, where they're using uh, the water, of course, for supplying crops, things like that. But it only works in some parts because the lake water is salty and more salty in some areas than others. On the fringes of the lake around are more cities, more settlement. Those are not the people that we think of as Aztecs, though they are often called that. These are other indigenous civilizations. Um, The main descendants of the Aztecs are called the Nahua, the people who speak Nahuatl, and many of the other cities in this region speak Nahuatl, but by no means all of them. There are a lot of other languages. Nahuatl is a kind of becomes a kind of lingua franca, and it's the one that dominates after the conquest. But there are hundreds of indigenous languages in Mexico before the conquest, and many, many different indigenous civilizations, a lot of whom have descendants today, of course. Um, The city itself, the centre, has a big ceremonial precinct with the Temple of Mayor and maybe 80 other ceremonial temple buildings. And it's a big uh, plaza. There's a huge marketplace on an adjoining city called Tlatelolco, because on this island actually are two cities, Tenochtitlan and a smaller one, Tlatelolco, which is a kind of twinned city. But they have recently, when the Spanish arrive, had a civil war and the Tenocha won and suppressed the Tlatelolca. But when people talk about the Aztec marketplace, they actually mean the one at Tlatelolco just next door. And maybe 60,000 people a day pass through the marketplace. It's an enormous, enormous trade centre. This is a city that is almost certainly bigger than any that the conquistadors have ever seen. It's bigger than London, which is the biggest European city in this era, and certainly bigger than Seville, which is the largest Spanish city. So throughout this conversation, there's been almost another civilization in the shadows of the one that we're talking about, the Spanish, um, which loom over all of this. So the moving on to the downfall of the Aztecs, if that's the right phrase. Um, on Instagram, Nardieta asked what happened to the Aztecs after the Spanish conquest. I wonder if you could maybe just tell us a bit about the Spanish conquest itself first and how that began. So what happens, it's a big story, but very briefly, in 1519, a man called Hernando Cortes and a relatively small group of conquistadors land near what is now Veracruz. They call it Veracruz, the city of the True Cross. And they've heard rumours of this big city in the interior and march towards it. There are various interactions both with emissaries sent from Tenochtitlan and with other indigenous groups, some of whom they fight, others they negotiate with, because fortunately for them, quite early on, a group of women are given to them as enslaved people. They've been enslaved by the Maya who live in the coastal regions. And one of them is a woman called, we think, Malintzin. She becomes known as Doña Marina to the Spanish. She's sometimes also called La Malinche. And she speaks Nahuatl and Maya. And in the Spanish company is a man called Aguila who speaks Maya and Spanish. So between them, they're able to translate. It takes quite, it's obviously a bit laborious and not very reliable, but you translate the Spanish into Maya and then the Maya into Nahuatl and and so on. Doña Marina, as they call her, who is obviously a very intelligent, kind of skilled woman, quite quickly learns Spanish and becomes Cortez's translator and cultural interpreter assistant. And so he's able then to negotiate with other groups and eventually with the Aztecs when he reaches the city. She's really important because there's this myth that a small group of Spanish conquistadors defeat the might of the Aztec empire, where in actuality what happens is that they ally or defeat and force to ally a number of indigenous groups on their way to Tenochtitlan, most famously the Tlaxcalans. And by the time they reach Tenochtitlan, the Tlaxcalans, who have been at war with the 
Mexica, the Aztecs, for decades at least, the Tlaxcalans have tens of thousands of allies sent with them. We think maybe up to 10,000 at that first arrival. So when you imagine Cortes and his plucky band of conquistadors turning up at Tenochtitlan, what you actually have to imagine is him turning up flanked with 10,000 indigenous warriors, perhaps as many as that, certainly a very large number. So there's a sense in which what happens next is as much the Tlaxcalan defeat of the Tenocha Aztecs as it is the Spanish defeat. The Spanish negotiate with Moctezuma and are invited into the city because Cortes doesn't really want to destroy the city, which is very beautiful. It's a sort of jewel, as he sees it, of civilization and beautiful architecture and so on. So he wants to negotiate for them to agree to be the vassals of Charles I, King Charles I in Spain, who's just become the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, but Cortes doesn't know that yet. Now, they are welcomed into the city. They live in the city for a period of time. At some point, they seize Moctezuma and start ruling through him as a puppet ruler. Some people say it's earlier, some people say it's later. I tend to later because I don't think that all these warriors would stand around letting him be a puppet ruler for months on end, but at some point that happens. Cortes has to leave the city to deal with a group of people who have been sent actually to bring him back to Cuba because, or what is now Cuba, because, sorry, Hispaniola, because he has actually gone in defiance of the local governor. And so he's, they're trying to arrest him for rebellion. So a lot of the things he does are driven by the fact that he's actually illegally doing all these things. So he has to be very impressive. He's trying to legitimise what he's doing by winning, basically. So he, this is important. I, I know this sounds really detailed, but it's actually really important because what happens is he leaves the city and he leaves in charge uh, a man who turns out to be very ill-suited to command. He's a very hot-headed man and he leads what is either a massacre of indigenous people at a festival or charitably read. The, the Spanish are afraid of the warriors dancing. They don't understand what's happening and they kill them. More likely it's it's a massacre. He's Alvar, a man called Alvarado. He's not too happy, we, as far as we can tell, with all this negotiating and waiting around. And so when Cortes arrives back at the city, he discovers the Spaniards besieged and starving because they've, they're stuck in the, the palace where they were being housed. And of course, the Aztecs, having seen this massacre, are no longer cooperating with them. They have Moctezuma with them. He is tries to negotiate with the crowd and is at some point either killed by the Spanish or, or dies at the hand of the Aztecs. And so the Spanish flee at night. They're caught fleeing and on a famous occasion called the Noche Triste, the Night of Tears or the Night of Sorrow. Sorry, from the point of the Spanish, of course. And a large number of them, at least half, and a lot of their indigenous allies are massacred. They regroup, they fall back to Tlaxcala where they regroup and bring um, 13 boats over the mountains. It's an incredible feat of engineering on the part of their indigenous allies. They build these boats, these Spanish style boats, and they besiege the city of Tenochtitlan. A dreadful smallpox epidemic. We think probably smallpox has broken out in the city at that time. And so the Mexica find themselves besieged with water supplies cut off, food supplies cut off, and also suffering from this dreadful epidemic. Cortes leaves the North Causeway open because he keeps trying to get them to retreat. He wants to take the city whole, but the Aztecs are determined to fight to the death. And so he advances through the city, destroying buildings as he goes. And eventually the Aztec capital falls to the Spanish and at that stage it is in ruins and a very large number of the Aztec people have already died. The ruler Cuauhtémoc, who has taken over from... Well, he doesn't take over. There's another one in between who's really rubbish and doesn't live very long and dies of smallpox. And then Cuauhtémoc, who is famed as the last real Aztec ruler because he doesn't collaborate with the Spanish, is captured in a canoe fleeing the city and later tortured to death uh, because they're trying to find his gold, which he doesn't really have, I don't think. What happens after that is a story that can be told in a lot of different ways. It is an absolute tragedy. 
in central Mexico, you're talking about within a decade, maybe 80 to 90% of the population having been wiped out by disease or violence. Within 100 years, maybe 80% of large areas across Mexico, at least 50% of the population have died. The Spanish, of course, impose their rule on Tenochtitlan and use it as a centre to expand their empire over Central uh, America. And indigenous people are subjected to the violence, both intellectual and physical, of colonisation. That said, there are many, many indigenous people who are, and indigenous groups are, who are extraordinarily resilient and remain very, very powerful in this colonial world. Especially in the first hundred years or so, the Spanish, in order to legitimate their rule, intermarry with the local nobility. They want them, they, they see these people as natural lords, is what they call them, of the land. And they recognise them as high nobles entitled to be exempted from various kinds of labour service and tribute and so on. There are indigenous councils running many areas. You have indigenous nobles and emissaries going to the Spanish court quite regularly to plead for various uh, concessions and grants. It, It depends... The the Aztecs themselves, in terms of the empire that was based in Tenochtitlan, that collapses almost entirely, though the Spanish appropriate many of the networks and communication um, uh, routes and so on that they used. But the people and the families do incredibly resilient things and carry on being important and influential. doesn't mean that many people do not die, that there is an incredible cultural and devastating intellectual, psychological impact. But you wouldn't want to ignore the fact that those experiences vary enormously and many people stay very significant in that society. Well, it's clearly a very complex story of integration, evolution, adaptation and destruction, all of those things kind of mixed together. So this might be a a slightly difficult question to answer as our last one, but um, I think it's an interesting one, though, which is from Instagram, which is Glass Layla, who says, um, are there any Aztec traditions that survive today? Maybe, again, I would broaden that out to say, can we see the influence of Aztec society anywhere today? Yes, yeah, there are many descendants of the Aztecs and of the Nahua more generally living across Mexico. There are maybe a million Nahuatl speakers still living in Mexico today. Many, many other indigenous groups as well. So because the Aztecs are not themselves a kind of clear group, this is a name they're only given later, it's hard to to identify their descendants. Although there are many groups that call themselves Aztec dance groups, Aztec religious groups. You see a lot of still, although the majority of Mexicans are Catholics, many also go to traditional healers, have a very close relationship with the earth and and, um, still respect traditional gods, especially, uh, most famously, the people that are usually called the Huichoy, but call themselves the Huicharetari, who live in the Sierra Madre Mountains. They are largely not Catholic and live quite a traditional lifestyle not without the trappings of modern civilization often, but they observe indigenous customs more more fully than many other parts of Mexico, where, of course, you have Nahuas living in cities, you have Nahuas living in traditional villages. They they have very, very different experiences. There are also many Maya people, far more Maya people, actually, than there are Nahuas, but a lot of them are in Guatemala and so on. So they were part of the former Aztec Empire, though, a lot of them. So you have still hundreds of indigenous groups and millions of indigenous people living across Mexico. And if you want to talk about the legacy, I suppose, of the Aztecs, that is far, far greater. It's not just the Aztecs, but of people of that region. Without this region, we wouldn't have tomatoes. We wouldn't have chocolate or tobacco, though maybe that wouldn't be a bad thing. 
from the Americas come vast quantities of things that we take for granted as part of our modern multicultural civilization. But often even we don't think of them as being very multicultural. Things like potatoes. Potatoes are from the Americas. Imagine Italian cooking without peppers or tomatoes or chilies. These are all things that came from the Americas. Every kind of bean that we have except for soybeans came from the Americas. All squash, maize. It's no wonder people in the Middle Ages are so obsessed with bread. Mostly what Europeans take the other way is cattle um, and large animals and diseases. But it, And obviously some plants, but a huge amount. So blueberries and, and peanuts, things that we just take for granted are part of our culture. If you think about Christmas dinner without turkey or potatoes, it would be a very, very different dinner. So I guess if this is the last thing we're going to talk about, I, I would want to tie it to what I'm working on now, which is about Native Americans from across the Americas traveling to Europe in the 16th century, before even the founding of Jamestown, when the British established themselves firmly. And we often think of a lot of these legacies, this stuff that comes to Europe, people maybe have a sense in very general terms that this might have been American, but I don't think they tie it to indigenous culture mentally. So when people think of tobacco and potatoes, they think of Walter Raleigh bringing them to Elizabeth I. But in actual fact, both those things are in Europe being brought here by indigenous people long before these European explorer types claim credit for it. Our history has been very whitewashed. You probably don't know that tens of thousands of native people are brought or travel from the Americas to Europe before 1600. Most of them, maybe, we don't know a statistic, but at least 80%, I would say, as enslaved people who are carried to Spain and uh, become part of the slave trade there. But then also ambassadors and visits people, kind of tourists simply visiting, or people who are here as part of families, as mestizo, mixed-race families, people who are kings and translators and traders. These people are part of that moment that we think of as the birth of globalisation. But I think we often wash them out in favour of focusing on these big, white, you know, the great white men figures. But in actual fact, what you have is this real mixing of cultures that includes people. And the Aztecs and the people of Mexico are very much part of that and their commodities. Rubber is another one, are are part of things that we take for granted today. That was Caroline Dodds-Pennock. You can listen to previous episodes in this series at historyextra.com forward slash podcast. And keep an eye on our social media for the opportunity to have your questions answered in future editions. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow when Jonathan Lichtenstein will be talking about the kinder transport. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.